Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Dear friends, hello and welcome to another episode of Strategy International Podcast, a podcast that is produced for Strategy International, a global think tank and consulting firm that brings together great minds from all over the world to discuss, analyze, exchange on various issues of global interest, such as international policy, uh, diplomacy, strategy and defense, economy, the environment, technology, and much, much, much more. Of course, for all that information, you can head on over to strategyinternational.org, where you'll find a wealth of information. Speaking of great minds, we have another great guest today on the show, Dr. Andrew Liaropoulos. Uh, he's an assistant professor at the University of Piraeus at the Department of International and European Studies. Uh, he also teaches in the Air Staff Command College, uh, and his interests uh, include international security, intelligence reform, strategy, foreign policy analysis, European security policy, cybersecurity, and Greek security policy. We're going to have a great conversation today. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. Hello, George. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and happy to share my thoughts on, on cyberspace, cybersecurity and many other topics. It, uh, it, yeah, go ahead. As, as you mentioned in the short introduction, I mean, I, I mainly focused the last year my research on uh, topics that are related to uh, to cyberspace. I mean, my background is obviously on international politics, international relations. So basically what I try to do is apply you know, all the theories and the concepts we have, let's say, from the traditional international politics and traditional, let's say, strategic thought in cyberspace. So the last years I've been you know, doing research and publishing on various topics on cyber governance, cybersecurity, uh, digital electoral interference, uh, digital surveillance, uh, digital sovereignty, many other topics. So um, I'm, I'm happy to be here and you know, any any questions, comments are more than welcome, obviously. This is why I was interested, because when we exchanged, uh, obviously, in preparation for this podcast, and you told me, look, uh, my specialization is international uh, uh, affairs, international politics, but I'm focusing on, you know, on, on, on cyberspace. And I found that super interesting because it's the global happening, right? It's something that has, you know, it's, it hasn't been around for too long, and whether we like it or not, every single government all over the world has to face the reality that either there's a threat or there's an advantage to being uh, uh, on um, on you know cyberspace and to 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 make policy around that issue. Uh, and I find it fascinating that you figure out a way to merge both uh, both those things. Uh, let's let's get started. C can you just explain this concept of cyberspace as a domain of you know this geopolitical antagonism? uh for all these powers uh globally yes uh i mean to make a very short academic note there is a new you know academic field cyber cyber studies in general so this is the area that many political scientists even you know people with background on law and it are trying to explore so this is my approach as well so to start with, with cyberspace we we call it nowadays you know as as the new domain the so-called fifth domain so mm -hmm. we look conventionally on all the other domains, you know, land, sea, aerospace. So the fifth, the new, let's say, domain is cyberspace. Basically, uh, the easiest way to understand this is to think it uh, not only as the conventional, let's say, internet, but basically as all the, you know, computer networks, all the computer systems that are uh, related to what we uh, have, a, let's say, a, a simple uh, conversation regarding or exchanging emails through internet. So basically, a very simple, uh, you know, a way to understand this is saying that it's the network of networks. Mm -hmm. It connects and uh, people all over the world. We transfer data, we transfer our ideas, our economy, and many other things. Uh, so it's especially the last two decades. It's it's a new domain that. Uh, all the actors, state and non-state actors, obviously compete. That that's, uh, that makes perfect sense because always states used to compete in all the other domains. What is you know kind of I think unique and interesting in this case is that is it's it's a domain of course that is complex. It's a domain that is always expanding. If you if you look at the other domains, okay, you can see land. You know you can measure it. Obviously, you, 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 the, there are there are borders, there are lines, there are 
certain uh, you know things regarding jurisdiction and sovereignty. But if you think of, of cyberspace, it's it's always getting bigger because it's actually about data. So the more data we produce, the more things we put on internet, internal things. It's you know it's like it's like a balloon that is always expanding and expanding and expanding. Right. And this is a challenge because uh, it's not let's say something static. It's actually quite dynamic as as a domain as as an arena of politics and geopolitics and of course an antagonism. Another issue is that uh, let's say in conventional terms we think of states and exercising state sovereignty, but really if you think about it, most of the uh, let's say part of the internet and cyberspace belongs to the private sector. So you have a big player there that you have to take into account when you're trying to regulate everything, think about security as well. So very, I mean, if, if, we, if you wanna put some, you know, let's say ideas about cyberspace uh, and antagonism, uh, we have to think that there, there is, let's say a technological angle that states want to compete about uh, digital technology. So there are many, uh, many areas. I mean, we cannot get into details on that, whether that is quantum computing, whether it's obviously artificial intelligence, whether it's uh, emerging disrupting technologies. So always state used to compete about technology. So this is just, you know, the latest, let's say, uh, let's say version. But, you know, in, in a way, they, the scary thing is that we do not know yet the impact of this. You know, these things are developing so rapidly that we cannot, let's say, project in five, whatever, 10 years from now, how things going to be, for example, in terms of artificial intelligence. So if you take a, a scholar on governance, he would, uh, let's say, uh, discuss many ideas about global governance, but suddenly you have algorithmic governance tomorrow. So how can you really write a new law or think in terms of politics and security, you know, one step forward, because technology is, is running faster than us. So there is a technological angle and, uh, and there is, uh, if, if you want to explore a bit on this more, there's, there's an antagonism also in terms of, of governance of cyberspace. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes into a lot of things. Uh, it, it goes, I would say that there are two conflicting ways of seeing the world and of seeing cyberspace. Uh, there is a division in a way between, uh, if we call them, let's say, digital democracies and, and uh, more, let's say, digital authoritarian states. So one group of states that obviously have a more democratic and liberal background, uh, they think that they should, let's say, govern internet and cyberspace through the so-called multi-stakeholders, through through the multi-stakeholder governance model. That means uh, in any, let's say, international forum or organization, you have states, but also non-state actors, meaning the private sector, and obviously uh, groups from the civil society. So this is, as you understand, a more open way of trying to regulate all those new things. Uh, and, the, and the rationale because behind this approach is that uh, cyberspace, you know, it, 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 a point it encapsulates globalization. You cannot only have states. You should have other players as well. That's why we call it multi-stakeholderism. Uh, and those players are obviously the private sector and uh, the civil society up to a point. On the other hand, we have the less democratic or more <clears throat> authoritarian states out there, which see this technology and this infrastructure and this domain as also a threat because they feel threatened by this. Uh, if, if we go back to the Arab Spring, it's, it's a very good example of how these states were frightened about how somebody could use, utilize the information communication technologies in terms of uh, social upheaval and uprising. If you remember the so-called Facebook or Twitter revolution back mm-hmm. then. So the idea was, you know, we have, let's say, a mechanism that we can use in our advantage to control, control society, control our citizens, exercise our power. And of, of course, you know, galvanize whatever our regimes and, I, and our ideas. So this is the second way that looks uh, in a way of a more traditional multilateral governance. So there you only have states or even if you have other players, basically it's about states. It's more in a, in a more, let's say, traditional Westphalian point of view that states should have uh, the first and the final saying in how we govern these things. And we should not allow other players uh, to get involved. This approach looks more you know, in, into, uh, let's say, security, national cybersecurity issues, obviously. And uh, there is an idea that cyberspace is not borderless. So we should, in a way, 
mm-hmm. uh, construct virtual whatever borders. So how do we exercise sovereignty? How do we exercise our control? So in, in, in the first case, you would see more, you know, liberal states, uh, democracies, mainly speaking in the West, obviously, the US, European Union, many other countries. And the second, you know, group of states, uh, the main states, I just you know, mentioned a few, like Russia, obviously, China, uh, North Korea, Iran, but also uh, states in, in some states in Asia and Africa that have a more, let's say, authoritarian approach on many things, including uh, the governance of, of of cyberspace. Right. Uh, t- tell me something. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned before about you know how countries need uh, you know different governments, of course, need to start adapting quickly to this. And you know, we're we're, we're talking about antagonism. Uh, and you know, historically, you know, when it comes to you know national security or or you know in general the way that countries behave it's a long process so when you have when we're talking about these global partnerships you know all over the world you kind of get to understand how certain countries and cer- certain governments uh tend to grow and tend to react and, and you can kind of project maybe 5 10 years in the future and to kind of position uh, yourself accordingly in this case because everything is happening online and there seems to be very little control how has cyberspace changed you know the traditional understanding of nat- uh, of you know national security and perhaps even warfare oh, it 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 has a major impact uh, as i mentioned earlier first of all in terms of both governance and security we have to take into account seriously the private sector so if if, if you look if we just define uh, the concept of the national critical infrastructure in some case you can say not many actually cases. You can say it's all, let's say, state-owned and regulated. But in many other cases, you know, because of privatization, we have privatized a lot of things, even things, you know, the banking sector, the energy sector, many other sectors that are private. So it's it's a case where you have, you know, to coordinate with the private sector, public-private partnership in order to regulate things about your national security. So this is a tricky thing because in you can think of states that theoretically have a strong private sector, basically state-owned. <laughs> so like China, for example, and, mm-hmm. and other cases, other states that have a big private sector and you know, they have different systems of regulation. So that is one thing that you have to consider of how you bring the private sector in. The other way of, of discussing, if I will leave warfare in a while, but if we think about security, you know, it, it's, it, it's a very tricky I would say, term to use in the cyber context, because uh, in traditional security studies, uh, there's always the question of how do you define security to secure, to safeguard what? So if you look about cybersecurity, information security, data security, and many other you know terms, I'm not going to go uh, into all the terminology now, you have to think of what is that that, that we actually want to, to secure, to safeguard? Mm-hmm. Is it, let's say, just the critical information infrastructure, but in, in terms of, let's say, national cybersecurity? Or is it also other things? Like, uh, do we also want to protect, safeguard values, democracy, mm. privacy, anonymity? So on one hand, you can have a more, let's say, state-centric, uh, you know, approach towards security and think that, you know, I want to, let's say, protect my infrastructure. But I, another approach, obviously, is a more, let's say, human-centric one. I also want to protect the users of this infrastructure. So mm-hmm. you, me, my my privacy, our data. So you have two, let's say, conflicting approaches. How how do you want to go? How do you gonna balance? You know, between let's say protecting infrastructure, the telecommunication infrastructure, but also the way users, you know, the the, the, the it's users and regarding its data. So there are there are cases, you know, there are very strict ways of you know. We have to protect you and the infrastructure, and we need your data for your safety, for national security, uh, obviously concerns. And the other way that is, you know, trying to balance between certain values and another system. Right. If we could... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. Uh, just uh, if, because you mentioned uh, war earlier. Uh, hmm. Now, if, if we go to war, uh, strictly speaking, I would say, and uh, uh, the majority of the scholars actually agree on that, we do not have a classic let's say, cyber war. So, of course, we have, you know, using cyberspace, cyber attacks in terms of both peacetime and wartime, but we don't have, you know, a strict, let's say, whatever case of, of cyber war. So, obviously, cyber attacks are used in, 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 in many conflicts 
And the tricky thing is because of the attribution problem, you cannot really pinpoint and say, you know, he did it, she did it, this country, mm -hmm. this state or non-state actor. So it's it's another uh, tricky thing with cybersecurity in general and cyber war in particular, because in conventional warfare, let's say, you can more or less identify the attacker. Mm -hmm. And uh, since you can identify the attacker, you can also uh, work on deterrence on <laughs> many other things. But if, you know, if, if I cannot prove that, I don't know, Mexico did a cyber attack on Canada yesterday, how can I, you know, do deterrence by denial, deterrence by punishment, uh, and all those things? So this is how we, in a way, leave the concept of having, you know, a, a super or whatever, a total uh, protective uh, system, and we go to resilience. And I mean resilience in general and cyber resilience in particular as a new concept. So you have to live with the idea that, you know, you cannot be 100% protected. You do not have a perfect, let's say, cyber seal to protect you, but you have must have a resilient system, you know, to, to be after an attack or after, after some hours effective, you know, to go and, and function again as a state. Right. But th th this goes back to the concept of governance that you were talking about earlier. How do, how do, how do we manage that? I mean, we know there are uh, concepts of international law. There, 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 there are uh, institutions in place that govern relations between uh, nations. And now you have this new reality uh, and you were talking about, you know, the two camps that you can be in. Uh, do we adopt it fully or do we implement certain restrictions? Um, and in the case, for example, in the, uh, the, that you gave between Mexico and Canada, obviously a very hypothetical example. Yeah. Um, what happens in that case? Uh, how do you, uh, you know, what, what are the legal structures that are getting involved in, in this new reality? And at the same time, let's not forget that you have, for example, uh, situations where there are uh, confederations or, for example, the EU. So, I mean, in addition to having to deal in a state by state uh, relationship, you also have a situation now where, for example, in Europe, um, you have to deal with the entire uh, institution. So how do you, yeah. how do we manage that? Or is there anything <laughs> is there anything in play as we speak? Or or is this kind of a direction that uh, governments are currently looking into? Okay, the the shortest answer is you know it's under construction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a saying that you know global cyberspace governance of cyberspace is still under construction for I don't know like twenty years or so. Oh, so yeah. so I, I think it's still going to be valid in ten or twenty years. Uh, okay, I mean. Let's let's get some ideas here. First of all, there is a lack and a gap in terms of in, uh, for international slash global governance of cyberspace. You know, we do not have a let's say a global treaty that pretty much regulates everything. Uh, the only thing that let's say we have regulated so far uh, is uh, is uh, things that have to do with cybersecurity, but more or less. You know, with uh, pornography, child pornography, and internet stuff like that. So it's a place where, and cybercrime up to a point that more or less everybody agrees. When we go about cybersecurity, cyber war, and actually exercising sovereignty and uh, all these things, uh, states have not come up to, you know, a final solution so far. Uh, there is an, an ongoing, actually 20, 25 years, if I'm not mistaken, a discussion in the UN. The, a governmental group of experts. Mm -hmm. uh, every four or five years, uh, there is a you know a statement about where how can we build norms in order to, you know to regulate steadily all those things. So we are not close uh, to having let's say uh, an agreement. Let's in terms of you know having let's say an international treaty. All that we are doing, and you know I can criticize that, is building norms. So norms is a nice thing. It's, it's mm -hmm. like the first step. You need norms. You know, we cannot do magic you know, from one day to another. But uh, it's really hard to see if somebody actually follows those norms, if actually somebody uh, is giving you enough data to prove that, you know, he's cooperating with you or not. You know, and, and I'm being very critical now, but you can just say, you know, unfortunately, but it's, norms but it's, but it's very important because, I mean, understanding, and maybe you can discuss this. I mean, it's related. I mean, the challenges in achieving consensus on these cyber norms and these rules, you know, among the different countries and stakeholders, where are we with that? Yes, well, as I said, we are still trying. If 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 I put it in another way, and I hope it doesn't happen, sometimes you know you need a big event to force us to mm -hmm. agree 
and and you know let's say obviously these are the norms we agreed we have to do it right now to really establish a regime so maybe i'm just saying maybe and i don't i don't hope this if we had a major incident you know a kind of cyber conflict or something that really demonstrates you know the need to go a step further then maybe you know if we had a big cyber attack a kind of let's say a cyber war maybe that would trigger and force us you know to build this consensus mm-hmm. uh there are many legal and not legal let's say discussions political strategic discussions about you know the uh, nato's article 5 you know in terms of you know how do we go to cyber war how do we do this how do we do that also in terms of how can you define an armed attacks in, in cyber and digital terms in conventional law you have armed attack that it produced some violence you know you, you kill people you destroy something up to a point it you know you have the kinetic attack approach but in the cyber and the digital context it's not that clear it was, i can do a cyber attack but nobody might get killed so is it a form of armed attack or not mm-hmm. there are states and uh, organizations that say you know there is you have we have to use this uh, affect uh, the the similar approach that if it's you know if you deny me the capabilities whether it's from a kinetic attack or a cyber attack it's the same thing mm-hmm. but you know in, in a way i would challenge this discussion saying that uh, i find it really hard that somebody will declare war because of a cyber attack mm-hmm. and you know let's say that somebody gets state a uh, gets attacked uh you have to think of whether the state a wants to uh make this public or not because as part of a cyber attack you can say okay something didn't work yesterday in my infrastructure i can say you know okay we had a a problem it's not that country b actually attacked me you know right. and you have to think does actually somebody want to do this because if you if you say this then you know the public the public opinion say you know how will we react sanctions a cyber attack or something like that so there are many cases out there you know in 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 things that you call cyber crime cyber terrorism cyber security cyber warfare of course many uh, states and state sectors are being attacked every day cyber attack but nobody really goes out in public and says it because mm-hmm. you, you know politically then with a political attribution you have to deal with it right so we don't have a, you know a, a clear let's say picture in terms of numbers in the terms of statistics of the volume of cyber attack that goes out there every day uh, a question for you andrew uh, because you know we we're mentioning before how you know the 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 two different positions that you know countries can can, can be in and how m- more often than not in one position you have more authoritarian countries uh, and uh, and i don't know the numbers perhaps you do it definitely seems that way though from everything that we're seeing that these le- these more authoritarian countries seem to be a bit more advanced when it comes to their um uh, you know their the cyberspace kind of control and uh whether it's cyber attacks or what have you we think of russia we think of china um and maybe i'm off maybe other countries have advanced uh, uh a policy on countering or on having their own uh, cyber uh, policy cyberspace policy but it seems to me that there are countries that are maybe a couple steps ahead so while the international community is thinking of values and norms and you mentioned like 20 years now it's been discussed at the UN and you know you have other countries that have fully taken advantage uh, of this technology and of the advances that are happening almost exponentially uh, do they have an edge over uh, the you know the other countries that are maybe more western countries or more law abiding countries okay good question i mean let me just clarify something in general uh cyberspace is a domain that favors the offense so right. you know it, it's easier for somebody to attack uh, it's value for money just to do a, a cyber attack and it's really hard as i mentioned earlier the attribution uh, another way to to approach your question is how you know how would do we define uh cyber security only in terms of cyber attacks or also in terms of using cyberspace uh, social media platforms in order, right. you know, to manipulate, to do social engineering, uh, to control society in general. So yes, obviously, as, as you, you, I'm sure everybody in the audience can more or less understand. In terms of authoritarianism, you have a comparative advantage because you have a closed system. You have a system that is usually authoritarian. You want to control. You control the old media. You control now internet. You control the social media, and it's a way to exercise some sort, let's say, of domestic control. You do not have a real opposition. You can manipulate public opinion. So that gives you 
to a point a comparative advantage in terms of domestic politics. In terms of, let's say, uh, you know, let's say cyber offensive, whatever capabilities, I cannot really answer the question because it's 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 quite technical and we, you know, we can only answer this sort of questions from open sources. But from, let's say, 20 years, let's say, of, of, of experience and, and, and uh, you know, open source information, we see until now that, let's say, the cyber option is rarely uh, a unique option or a game changer. It's one of the many options. Mm. So, yes, it's, it's one of the domains. It's one of the fields that everybody's going to use. But more or less, depending on the conflict, you know, depending on the participants in every conflict in the warfare, it's one of the many options. You still have, you know, the brutal conventional ways of, of doing conflicts or killing people or uh, bombing and stuff like that. But the other angle, which is not um, in a way that often highlighted, is if you think of cyberspace and, as I said, cybersecurity in terms of more, let's say, sociopolitical terms and less of military technical ones. So, of course, in every conflict, war, there is a battle about, you know, the public opinion, about the truth, about, uh, uh, you know, uh, shaping the public opinion, about mm. gaining the consensus. So this is an area that pretty much, you know, as I said earlier, we have to think of whether it's something that attacks also our values, which values, of course. For somebody, it could be, you know, in terms of national security, I'm always right. <laughs> so I want, you know, to safeguard public opinion. These are ideas, and I'm not criticizing, I'm just, I'm just explaining these ideas that are explored obviously in, in Russia, China, and many other states. Uh, if you look at at Russia, and it's, it's an interesting example also because of the wars in Ukraine. Since 2016, they had their national information security doctrine. And they said in 2016 that we want to have, as, as I said, a clean internet, clean meaning not having others, you know, in our, let's say, information, uh, national information sphere, as they, as they call it, as they label it, that obviously spread disinformation in their point of view. Right. And they have the approach of having the so-called RUNET, Russian network, which is a closed national network. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, remember, after Crimea and everything, uh, they said that in case of an emergency, emergency could be anything, you know, let's say a coup or a war or whatever, we should be able to, you know, get the Russian internet disconnected from, let's say, the global internet. And that's what they did on March 2022, last year. Yeah. After the war, they said, you know, we're not allowing all the others, whatever, Western slash American uh, social media companies and in general to operate in, in, in Russia. We control the infosphere. We control the data centers that are based in Russia, in Russian territory, not abroad. So this is one dimension of, you know, of how, if you, if you think of domestic politics and, you know, regime change or not, that is very important. The other aspect of it is, you know, about cyber attacks or not. You know, speaking of China, there, there's a lot of talk and, you know, there's very, obviously there's very little information and we don't know um, if it's actually true or not. You know, the, the, this concept of um, this Chinese social credit uh, that, that, that is being spoken about, and we're talking about societal norms, uh, you know, how, how has Chinese digital authoritarianism evolved in recent years? Um, and it, it seems to me that it's completely disconnected from anything, at least that we're living here uh, in, in Canada, where I'm from. Yes, it, it has evolved uh, <laughs> in a rapid way. And I would say, you know, if, if you think of the, how should I say it, a digital version of George Orwell, a digital version of Panopticon, you can find it in China, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So China is, was whatever, more or less a closed system. Okay. So during the Cold War, even in post-Cold War, in terms less close, but still close. You know, it, it's part of their culture in a way to be a closed system. So what they understood, especially after, as I said earlier, the Arab Spring, that, you know, this is a threat, but also there is an opportunity. It's a threat if you have you know, whatever, call revolution tomorrow morning in Beijing and you have, a, you know, Chinese people saying, you know, we want to change everything. But it's also an opportunity, you know, a useful tool to have, uh, as they say, in in terms of uh, Confucius, you know, societal harmony. Mm -hmm. So they, this is the opportunity, you know, to have uh, 
uh, societal harmony to actually be able to regulate how people think, how to censor and self-censor the Chinese citizens in terms of everything. So what they have done actually since 2016 is the idea of the so-called social credit system. Mm -hmm. It's a system that uh, every Chinese citizen, it's not fully implemented right now until now, but it's it's uh, it's expanding in, in both state and actually in the private sector. So what they said is every citizen has, let's say, a, a digital number, like, you know, a social security number. So a, a digital number and uh, also an application in, in the mobile, right? So everything you do in terms of uh, digital terms, in terms of cyberspace, is valued and you receive credits uh, and a low score or a higher score. So I'll just give you some examples. So if, if you go uh, on a social media platform and criticize the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, obviously you will receive a low score and you will and you will see it on your mobile saying that you know you lost 10 points, for example. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yes. If you if, if there is a public demonstration uh, criticizing, I don't know, the Oigus, the the Tibet, uh, whatever uh, relationship, or the Taiwan, whatever relationship, and you participate either online or physically, again, you will uh, receive a low score. But there are practical implications of that. So if you go with a low score and you go to the bank and you ask for a loan, I'll say, oh, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> George has a higher score than Andrew, so, you know, we will choose to give the money to George, okay? You can not work in the public sector. Right. And you are the final, the, the worst case scenario, of course, that you go to jail. Okay. But there are restrictions regarding that you cannot leave the country. Because if you want to book a ticket, you have to do it through this number. So once you put, you know, on the website this ticket, this number, it says, you know, we're not going to allow you to give you an air ticket. You cannot even leave the province that you are. So you're in a way a prisoner in your in your, in your own whatever territory there. So it's a way to do you know in, in a grand scale social engineering. This is you know a very I mean if if you ask me very Orwellian uh, way of of utilizing this technology. No no and, doubt no doubt. And I mean as you're talking, I'm thinking is there any advantage to having something like this? And, and the only thing that keeps coming to my head is obviously no. I mean, what a what a really authoritarian way of controlling your population. Yes, but it, let, let, me, let me add another angle. We, I mentioned China and, yeah, you know, the, the, the first that have implemented that. But if you look closer, if you look on what China is doing in other areas because of the digital Silk Road, you know, the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. So there is a digital version of on that as well. So what are the Chinese saying in, uh, you know, countries in East Asia and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa? They say, you know, we will build all the digital infrastructure for you. Don't go to the West and go to the US or the EU. will build it, you know, cheaper or whatever, or we don't care about other regulations. And we will also offer you, you know, a form, you know, of digital authoritarianism, both infrastructure, you know, the CCTV cameras, but also the regulations. So if you don't think of in terms of Canada, which is a nice democracy, liberal state, if you think of in terms of, you know, other places in the world mm. that are, you know, not that democratic or a bit semi-authoritarian, they are going for the Chinese option. And if you look at the big picture, we think of, you know, internet, the way it started, it was obviously a US project. It was very liberal, very democratic, the nature of it, you know, of being an open system. But if you think in 10, whatever years from now, and you think that, you know, there are whatever, there are seven, whatever, eight billions tomorrow morning. And most of those people, you know, are in states that do not have a very you know, genuine liberal understanding of certain things. And they might think, you know, it's right for the state, whatever, to regulate everything to control me and control my data and control whatever my privacy. So this is, you know, a scary concept of how things might be, uh, even in terms of, you know, if, if you want to make a, an international treaty in 10 years from now and say, how do we regulate data, privacy? I'm sure that both of us, you know, would fancy the more liberal Western approach, but maybe that does not apply to, you know, the majority mm -hmm. of the states out there. So this is why we might have, you know, like small how should I say, groups of states like the EU or other cases where we have, you know, different uh, models, different approaches. 
the EU is is, is an interesting case. Uh, you mentioned the European Union earlier. In the European Union, uh, it, it's a unidactor. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's an organization, but it's small and in the government organization. And they are discussing the last four or five years about the idea of digital sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it it's an interesting discussion because if you think of sovereignty, you always define it in terms of a state. So can they you have sovereignty? It's it's not a state. Right. But what 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 what's the what's the rationale behind this discussion? The Europeans obviously realized that they're weak in many terms, in, in digital terms. Uh, to be very hard on that, uh, there is a saying that you know the EU is a digital colony because. If you look at the digital market, if you look at artificial intelligence, if you look at data infrastructure, 5G, uh, cloud data, etc., it's either the US or the Chinese that are dominant. We, I mean, we as the European Union, we buy from either the US or, or China. So it started as a discussion, you know, we are weak in a way, and we have to think of how, you know, to become more autonomous. Again, a discussion about EU strategic autonomy, but also, also in digital terms. So it's interesting because uh, any conventional discussion about sovereignty in EU would, you know, would, would raise eyebrows. Well, what is this? You know, mm-hmm. it's national sovereignty. Right. <laughs> you know, we still have states, nation states, you know, whatever. But in terms of digital, it's interesting because the EU has realized its weaknesses. It's the first step. Uh, the other thing is, you know, what are, if, if you look at the EU, we're not going to go, let's say, towards the Chinese, let's say, model. And in a way, the EU does not really fancy, if I might say, the US model, because that's of data capitalism. We are more sensitive in terms of, you know, some things about how data regulation, privacy, anonymity. Think of the idea of the GDPR. So this is, we are somewhere in the middle in terms of we are not close to, let's say, data capitalism that the US has as a model. Of course, not the digital authoritarian one that the Chinese have. And there we have we have the idea of the so-called Brussels effect. So how can EU in a way project digital power in soft terms that you know everybody likes the GDPR or it's a regulation that up to a point we can enforce you know to other states out there. So we lose something in terms of infrastructure, obviously, but we gain something in terms of you know influence. So as I said, you know this is a very complex and dynamic way of seeing different uh, conceptions, different perceptions of how we can take advantage of regulations, of technology, and of things, you know, to, to happen in the near future. With, um, you, know, you know, with a very quick development of AI and, you know, quantum, uh, quantum computing, you know, what kind of impact does that have on, you know, the global cyberspace landscape? Well, what role does it already have or will it have in the future? Uh, it's it's really a, an interesting and difficult question to to answer. First of all, as I said earlier, it's very dynamic. It's something that we have not seen the end of it. I mean, it's we cannot right now imagine uh, the full spectrum of implications of artificial intelligence. We have seen only let's say a part of it. Again, I cannot say if it's a small or you know the half of it or whatever. Uh, there is an obvious implication in, in the global market in how you produce wealth. Right. And there is also uh, an implication about how you can use this in terms of security and warfare. If you if you look at the case of Ukraine, which is, you know, it, it's a it's a good example. It's it's like a living. It's like a laboratory right now for the utility there, the the application of artificial intelligence. You can use it in cryptography, cryptanalysis. You can use it in, in terms of uh, open source code. You can use it in terms of uh, identifying, you know, the, a person in a picture from a social media platform. Or is this actually Andrew or is it somebody else that has, you know, right. changed the characteristics and deep fake videos in um, uh, face recognition, you know, uh, applications. So it's I'm sure it's going to have a huge impact. Uh, what I am, you know, if I might say a bit uh, worried about is the human aspect of it. We have always seen technology through history changing, you know, the social structures, the social ecosystem, the way we produce wealth, we we fight uh, from gunpowder to nuclear weapons, okay? But with artificial intelligence and many other implications, uh, the human element, the human part is, you know, it's, it's the tricky thing uh, because it's, 
up to a point dehumanizing many things. And that's the scary thing because mm-hmm. in artificial intelligence, it not, it's not that, let's say, a machine will just press the button, you know, fire, but it would also make the decision. Its own decision, yeah. So you use the the ethics and, you know, the, the, the humanity of it. As I said, in, in one term, you're just dehumanizing it. And I cannot speak in technical terms because I'm not an expert on that, whether, you know, that can happen easily or not, because it's still, you know, under developing the the machine learning and, uh, but, you know, in a, in a scary whatever <laughs> scenario and project, you can think of machines taking over and, and building, building, constructing their own understanding and ethic. And that might be different to the human, let's say, understanding. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you will have another civilization on Earth, huh, to put it very, uh, yeah. very frankly. And, you know, we have to, in a way, compete or fight or coexist with machines and artificial intelligence tomorrow morning. It's uh, it, it's quite fascinating. Uh, you spoke before when we when we first started about, the, you know, centralizing or decentralizing, uh, you know, the Internet infrastructure. What are some risks or benefits of having a more decentralized uh, structure? Uh, there is uh, the tendency, if I had to predict, uh, <laughs> to go to defragmentation. Uh, the original and let's say romantic idea of having one common whatever internet cyberspace that you, would we unite the whole world, and you know it's the idea of globalization. Uh, if we look how things are developing, it I don't think it's going to be here for many more years. Uh, states or regions, you know, are going to the idea that we should develop our own understanding and our own infrastructure. Uh, in a way, it's the opposite way. It's it, it, it's an example of deglobalization, if you want. Right. Uh, if you look at, I mean, there are cases, in a way, small cases, like North Korea, uh, Russia, uh, and Iran, in a way, that have gone towards this option. Uh, this might not be a popular option, and you're losing a lot of things in terms of, you know, global commerce, uh, stuff like that. But you can have regional, like, if African or through ASEAN or through the European Union, regional smaller, let's say, intranets, where certain states will regulate and uh, combine certain sectors. Is it commerce? Is it freedom of speech? Is it something else? So I'm not very optimistic on having a a global, united and common cyberspace in in, uh, the near future. It's going to be... Fragmented, and if you want, if you if you look back at history, it's it's it makes sense because fortunately, unfortunately, you know, we have competition, you have antagonism, and you're gonna have a class. Mm-hmm. Maybe after a class, things, you know, we have we will change the cards again, and we will have a new structure, a new order. I cannot predict that, but the way things are going in terms of governance, in terms of uh, warfare and security, it looks that we're gonna have you know a defragmented. Uh, internet in the near future. Right. I, I want to go back to uh, to the cyber deterrence that we were speaking about before. How much space do you think, or how, what role does you know the, the the this concept of cyber deterrence have in national security strategies or policy? How much do you think that that concept, you know, in terms of the the, the different government policies, does it occupy in terms of percent? Do you think it's the main uh, worry, or do you think it, it's one of you know the top priorities in in constructing uh, national security strategies? Uh, there is a how should I say it? Uh, should I put it a, a diplomatic and a more practical answer? So if we go to the more let's say diplomatic answer, every state, every cyber command, every ministry of defense, etc., would say we want cyber deterrence. We're working towards cyber deterrence, etc., etc. If you look in everyday practice, uh, as I said earlier, we more or less know that it's hard to deter, uh, you know, effectively. Uh, you can deter by denial, which is difficult up to a way, depending on the states and the case of case, and you can deter by punishment. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, a well-known secret actually is that everybody is doing some sort of, you can label it as you want, 
cyber attacks, cyber operations. There are especially uh, new approaches regarding active and passive defense in, in, in cyberspace. Very you know, flexible terms to <laughs> define in legal and not legal terms many things. So as I said, I think we, over, we have passed the way of actually doing deterrence. And we are in the way of building resilience, societal cyber resilience, and using offensive, defensive operations, uh, active, passive, whatever defense, label it as you want it, to do our business in right. both peacetime and wartime. And, you know, with cyberspace and also hybrid warfare, I'm sure you know, there's a gray area because it's not clear that, you know, this is peacetime, this is mm -hmm. wartime, like, you know, you don't change, you push a button and say, today we start, right. uh, conventionally speaking, the wars. You do what you do. I mean, you penetrate computer systems, you collect information, you place your Trojan horses, Every day, you know, that's a common practice and you do not have, you know, the, let's say, conventional or nuclear understanding of only having deterrence and, you know, putting all, all your emphasis on that. Right. You know, the, the, up until maybe five, six, maybe let's say if we push it 10 years ago, in my opinion, or the way that I always saw it, there was this clear dividing line between the private sector and government. Uh, of course, they they mingled. Obviously, one needs the other to coexist. But when it came to actually, you know, the business of politics, it was rare to see, you know, the private sector have such an active role. Right. Uh, and, and it seems to me now and going back to what you're saying, that private companies and these tech giants are taking much, much more space in terms of policymaking and the influence they have uh, on governance. Um, what do you think? you know, the role of the private companies and these tech giants should be in 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 shaping cyberspace governance or behavior? It's, uh, it's really important to think of the private sector, as I said earlier, as a stakeholder. You cannot imagine, let's say, a cyberspace, internet, and all these things, all these developments without the private sector, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Then the question is, how can you cooperate or regulate, you know, depending on whether it's the US, the EU or China, different approaches, obviously, of the private sector. In terms of, uh, how should I put it, economy, in terms of uh, everything, you know, it, it's a data-driven system out there in terms of economy, in terms of influence, in terms of uh, warfare and security. So the majority of uh, the actors that are involved in this are from the private sector. So you need, in a way, to find to strike a balance. It's scary, and I say scary in both democracies and non-democracies, to consider how powerful these technological giants are. Mm -hmm. I will give you, I, I'm not going to say names, but yeah, you know, they are pretty much known. Think of a search engine. Anything that you want to look at, you, say, you, you just put the term in, in the search engine. So imagine that this search engine or any search engine more or less controls knowledge up to a point. Right. You know, it's not that you're going to go to the library, conventional speaking library, open a book and look for something. You're going to look at there. So somebody has the power in a way to control data slash knowledge up to a point. And there is an algorithm behind this of whether you're going to put this term and whether something will show up in the number one or number 100. Mm -hmm. Think of, of this. It's just, 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 just this example of how powerful somebody is. Think of the social media platforms. They regulate, they, they, no, sorry, they control, you know, the, the, the narratives, the shape the narratives. Uh, there are cases where, you know, the algorithm pretty much is, is, <laughs> is fixed in a way to, uh, to, to, to offer us an alternative perception or not. But whether it's, you know, the US, China, Russia, or whatever, the EU, you have to think of how powerful those. Uh, private sector is definitely but also all the information they have right on what we like what we don't like uh uh in the morning what what's the trend uh at night what's the trend what do you like more it's it's fascinating to me to to to, to know that there's a space where they have all this information yes and that it's it's it, the the model of the economy model is based on data so they say of, of course we you know since it's uh free of charge to be in a social media platform, more or less. I'm going to take your data, have a profile of you uh, as a customer, but also as a citizen, right? So, okay, maybe somebody knows from my search engines what I like, what I dislike, 
but you also know, politically speaking, ethnically speaking, racially speaking, sexually speaking, what are my preferences? So somebody could target me, you know, micro-targeting or social targeting in general right. and manipulate me up to the point. Uh, this is why uh, I, I think that we need, and this is an optimistic and, and actually a wish, we need in, in the near future to construct a social contract, a digital social contract. So if, if you look in the past of the ideas of a social contract, you say, you know, we have a state, a government that regulates. We as a people, a society, we give, let's say, this authority to somebody to regulate more or less our lives. We need to do this again, but we are in, in a state of data. Uh, you know, it's not just war. And we are in a state where boundaries are not fixed. Right. And we have to have in this uh, calculation, fortunately or unfortunately, the private sector. There are cases where the private sector is more influential and powerful than small states right. Right. in terms of economic power, but also in terms of influence. So we should, you know, try to construct a new social contract and see how we can regulate the private sector for the benefit of all. But as I said earlier, it, up to a point, I know that it's, you know, it's an, it's an idea that is out there, but it's very difficult to, to apply it. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to wrap it up, Andrew. Um, anything that you're working on right now or uh, anywhere where you want to direct all the listeners and viewers to kind of follow your work and uh, the amazing stuff that you're doing? Well, <laughs> in this uh, internet environment, anybody that Googles my name or put in any search engine, you can find my profile in Academia and ResearchGate in the University of Piraeus. I upload all my publications because I like the idea of sharing, obviously, my 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 thoughts, my research, and I'm looking forward for any feedback in LinkedIn and many other uh, social media platforms that you can find me. We're going to have everything in the description for anyone interested in following uh, Andrew. Thank you so Excellent. much for the time that you took. Really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, I want to invite everyone to go uh, uh, to strategyinternational.org for any information. We're on all uh, digital platforms, so there's really no excuse. So you have such a wealth of information available to you. Andrew, once again, thank you so much for the time. It's really appreciated. Thank you, George. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.